Okay, so we're into our second in a sermon series, a five-part series, and it's called What Wondrous Love Is This? And what we're trying to do in this series is to hit salvation history, uh, five of the high points of salvation history. So Father Tyler started us out with the lowest point last week, came from Genesis 3, and it was the fall when we chose to listen to that slithering servant, serpent rather than our loving creator, and we fell from God's grace. Uh, but even then, in chapter 3, there was a promise, right? And the promise was that God would come and redeem his people, that he would indeed one day be our God, and we would be his people one day. So we serve an awesome God. The promises of God are always trustworthy and true. And I want to look at the second step or one of the other steps in salvation today. And that comes from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. If you have your Bibles or your iPads or whatever, it's great to look at that. And I'd like to encourage you to begin to memorize some scripture. And this is a real easy one because it's 3131. It's very easy to remember. Jeremiah 3131. This Bible verse, I must say though, makes me tingle with excitement every time I read it. It's just wonderful. Verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. Hear those words? What's coming? A new covenant. A new testament, a new way of God relating to his fallen human creatures to draw them back to himself, that he would indeed be our God and we would indeed one day, one day be his people. So what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Because most of us, we don't have covenants. If you've got a homeowner's association, you may have a covenant, but it's really a contract in the end. You might want to think of the difference between dating and marriage, okay? Dating normally involves a lot of if-then statements, right? Uh, if you do this, then I will stay in relationship to you. As long as you make me happy, then I'm yours forever. <laughs> as long as you meet up with my expectations, then I will love you. That's dating. You can get out very easily. Makes me wonder how I ever got Leslie to marry me. I mean, she had so many loopholes she could have used to get out of the relationship. Hasta la vista, baby, you're done. But somehow I snagged her. Some of you, and I'll date myself, but you may remember the old song between uh, um, Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond. It's a song called, You Don't Bring Me Flowers Anymore. And it's uh, a duel, dueling duet about two people in a contractual relationship, and they keep complaining that the other one isn't fulfilling the contract well enough. Remember these words? One saying, you don't bring me flowers. Other one said, well, you don't sing me love songs. And then the comeback, you hardly talk to me anymore as I come through the door at the end of the day. I remember when you couldn't wait to love me. I remember when you used to hate to leave me. And then at the end of the song, they're looking for loopholes, my friends. You'd think that I could learn how to tell you goodbye because you don't bring me flowers anymore. Remember that one? Two people in a contract looking for loopholes. Well, tragically, sometimes we raise our children in contractual relationships. If you make good grades, 
if you do well in sports, if you marry well in life, then just fill in the blank. I will love you. I'll accept you. I'll be proud of you, whatever it may be. If you are raised in a contractual type of relationship with your parents, you know how much that hurts, right? Why is that? Because you're always fearful. You're fearful that you're not measuring up to their standards. You're fearful that you're never going to be able to do enough to win their love. You're fearful that you're never going to measure up. That's how contracts work. They are work-based, and they have the condition that you fulfill these things or else. A covenant, though, is different, right? Covenant is, is thicker. It's better. It's durable. It has expectations. It has rules for living. It has covenant principles to live by. But a covenants are sticky. They're durable. They're resilient. They speak of the faithfulness of two individuals that, are, that want to stay together forever. For most of us, the closest we'll ever get to a real covenant is marriage, right? You know, years ago in the prayer book, Leslie and I said, In the name of God, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for loving and to cherish, until we are parted by death, this is my solemn vow. That's not a contract, right? That's a covenant. I take you until death, solemn vow. So a marriage covenant is about as close as we'll ever get to experiencing a covenant. And here's my disclaimer. If you're in a bad marriage now, or if you're in an unfaithful marriage, or a good marriage, or whatever it is, please know that this marriage image is about God's declaration to be married with us. So whether it's good or bad, don't apply it to yourself right now. Apply it to God. This is what God wants us to live into. So many of the covenants God would make in the Old Testament, one is called the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, which we just read and we'll be reading every week during Lent. The Ten Commandments, and Jeremiah speaks of it today. They were basically rules of the covenant relationship, right? Marriage vows, if you will, between us and God. The Ten Commandments were basically our way of telling God how much we love Him, how much we appreciate God for everything that He's done for us. They were our way of, of saying to God, I love you more than anything else in this created order, and I will love the creatures that you created. It was a marriage covenant, basically. Deuteronomy exp expounds on this in Deuteronomy 6. There's an ancient prayer called the Shema, which talks about God's rules and God's covenant. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these things shall be written on your heart. So we serve a covenanting God. He, his love for us is sticky, durable, lasting, faithful, even when ours is not. Remember in the Old Testament that wonderful prophet Hosea? Hosea, the prophet, is asked by God to go out and marry a prostitute of all things. And in this relationship, she goes after other relationships. In fact, we learn throughout the story that Hosea is really our image of God. And Gomer, his wife, is really the image of Israel. And Israel is going after other lovers, other gods. And God has a choice there. Do I treat this as a contract and look for a loophole? Or do, is this a commitment and a covenant? 
And he decides, decides in his great love to go after Gomer, to pursue her, even though she's going after other lovers, to woo her back into covenant relationship, even purchases her from slavery to bring her back into his household. Now, friends, that's the image of God's love for you and for me. God will never give up or fail us, even though we oftentimes are unfaithful. And that's our human nature. Jeremiah explains in 17.1 that here's our human nature. The sin of Judah is written with an iron pen with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of the heart. Sin is written with an iron pen with a diamond tip written on the tablet of the heart. You think maybe that is written pretty deeply within our human nature? Jeremiah would go on to say in 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, So God is faithful in his covenant, always trustworthy, always true, and we're not always true to him. Remember, it didn't take long for Moses and the people of Israel to reveal their unfaithfulness, right? Remember the story? Moses goes up on the mountain to get the covenants, that love covenant with God, that relational covenant. And before he even gets down really good, they're out there drunk around a campfire worshiping this calf god. Remember the calf god was one of their old lovers back in Egypt? They had already gone after that lover. No sooner did God, by the love of God, draw them out of Egypt with his loving hands and give them a marriage covenant that they were already worshiping the calf god again. Don't you remember when Moses comes down, he is livid, right? And he goes, Brother Aaron, what in the world has happened here? Remember what Aaron said? He said, Moses, these people are an evil lot of people. He said, they're terrible. They kept demanding that they have this God to worship. So I collected some of the jewelry we had from Egypt, and we just, I kind of threw it in a fire and out popped this calf God. I don't know how. (laughs) I mean, you'd think that he could think up something better than that, right? But doesn't that reveal the heart of man, that we will run after any god or goddess, that we are so unfaithful to our God, especially when faced with that covenant relationship we hear about in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Does anybody else in this church have that capacity? No, we all fall short. That's why we need a new covenant. Look again at Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Old covenant, law of Moses. I loved them, brought them out of bondage. They broke it, though I was their husband. That's how much God loves us. So the difference between us and God is he's a faithful covenant keeper, and we're oftentimes not faithful in keeping our end of the bargain. But God is always faithful. I love the verse in 2 Timothy 2.13. Here's what it says. Paul is telling Timothy, If we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that beautiful? I remember with my mother one day, I said, Mom, is there a boulder anywhere on earth that God cannot move? 
She said, no, there's no such rock on this earth. I said, mom, is there any place on this earth where God is not? And she said, no, there's no place where God is not. I said, mom, is there anything that God cannot do? And she said, no, there's not. God rest her soul. She was wrong on the number three because it says right there, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He is a relentless God. He is a restless God who goes after his beloved, wooing her back into covenant relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. He pursues us with relentless love. He loves us that much. So how does God deal with unfaithful lovers like us? How does God deal with us? Through the new covenant that, Jeremiah's, that Jeremiah promised. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they have to teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. I will put my law within them. It's not going to be on stone tablets. It's not going to be a contract where they're looking for loopholes. This is going to be a lasting covenant. And they're going to want to reciprocate, to love me as I love them, to honor me, to show love in return. And on that new covenant day, I will be their God, and they will be my people. What a great God we serve. And how will we stand in the presence of a holy and remarkable God like that? I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more on that new covenant day. So how in the world can this be? Well, here is a good image to point us towards the cross and to Jesus. Genesis 15, okay? Just hang with me for a second. Abraham has been promised that he'll have descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore. God says, come on over here, Abraham. Let's make a sealing covenant together. All right, so in the Old Testament, you would cut a covenant. He said, go out and get a bunch of animals and cut them in two. Put one carcass on that side and half the carcass on that side. Build a trench in the middle. Let the blood flow down into the trench. And you and I are going to walk the faithful covenant together. And so he does that. The blood's in the trench. And this deep sense of fear and foreboding comes over Abraham because he knows he cannot love the Lord his God with all of his heart and his mind and his might and his soul. He knows that if he walks that covenant, he's a dead man walking. Because when you finish walking the covenant and all the blood's all over you, you say to your partner, if I ever break covenant with you, may it be to me as it was to these animals. He knows he's a dead man walking. He's so depressed that he falls asleep. Later that night, he sees the image of God walking faithfully the covenant for him. And at the end of the covenant is simply God. He never says, Abraham, now you ratify your part of the covenant. you got to be as faithful to me as I am to you. He walks the covenant for him. You know what that says to us? God not only keeps his part of the bargain, he keeps our faithfulness as well. And if we get to the end of the covenant and we have broken covenant with God, he takes the blood upon himself. 
He doesn't make us walk the covenant of blood. So the blood penalty is on God. And, and the righteous walking is on God. It has nothing to do with us. Remember, Jesus is the only one who's been able to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, his soul, and mind. Jesus is the only one who reached out to the least and the last and the lost and loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only faithful one. He walks that covenant faithfully. And when we don't, our blood is on him. Galatians 3.13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Before it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became the curse for us. That's the good news. That's why on the night before Jesus died for us, he took that chalice in his hand, full of the wine in that chalice. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. You hear those words? This is the blood of the new covenant, writ, prophesied by Jeremiah 600 years before. He's telling the church, I will walk in faithfulness before the Lord to live the life you could not live. And when you fail me in covenant, I will take the curse upon myself so that you get everlasting life. I've walked faithfully for you. I take the curse upon myself. That's the good news. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. He lives within us. Remember the promise? One day you're not going to have to say, Know the Lord, for everybody will know me. For Christ lives within me. His presence is inside. So, just four quick applications of the truth of the new covenant, okay? One is that you should allow the love and the joy of the new covenant to penetrate your heart. If you see Christ up there walking faithfully the path and, and dying for your sins, it ought to soften your heart for people. In Ezekiel it says, I will send my Holy Spirit and take from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Allow the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God this Lenten season to transform your heart so that you may be more loving, more like Jesus. Not that you've got to try and pull up your own bootstraps. Let the Holy Spirit do it for you. Number two, trust faithfully in what Jesus has done for you. Have that blessed assurance. All of salvation is on God. And if you have fallen short of God's great and holy covenant, all of the curse is on Jesus. It's not on you. Repent and return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, loving and kind. All right, number three. If you've been loved with a love like this new covenant love we've talked about, then your love for other people ought to be more durable, resilient, sticky. It might ought to be more... more uh, promising. So love within your church family, love within your own family, your love of friends and family. You ought to be the first person that's ready to forgive because Christ has forgiven you. You ought to be the last person who says, man, we were just in a contract. I'm done with you. We live in covenant love because Jesus loved us with covenant love. And number four, when you come to the Eucharist and you receive that chalice, never take that for granted. 
this is the new covenant in my blood which was shed for you. And because of that, he forgives our iniquities and remembers our sins no more. There is no greater message in the entire world, so never take it for granted. Sip from that cup and drink in his mercy and his grace and his love. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us in the new covenant, that it is not like the old covenant that our forefathers and foremothers broke as you lovingly brought them out of bondage in Egypt. But in this new covenant, you walk the path of faithfulness and you die the death of sin and guilt so that we don't have to. So thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you that you do not love us contractually, you love us covenantally. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and perform.